It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week, you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. Black people deserve a president as American citizens who care about us in public spaces, not because he's a black man, but because the black man happens to be the president. That's Georgetown professor Michael Eric Dyson discussing his new book, The Black Presidency, Barack Obama and the Politics of Race in America. The book examines how the president has dealt publicly with the national traumas of Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, and others. According to the New York Times, the book argues Obama's presidency is bound by the rules and rituals of black respectability and white supremacy, and the leader of the free world conforms to white expectations. Dyson has written 18 books with subjects like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. He's described by journalist Michael Fletcher as a Princeton PhD and a child of the streets who takes pains to never separate the two. He was on stage in February as part of the Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series at the Aspen Institute. The Institute's president and CEO, Walter Isaacson, interviewed Dyson. Here's their conversation. Let's start, if we can, Professor, with the definition of the politics of respectability. Mm -hmm. The politics of respectability was first put forth in a book, The Righteous Discontent, by Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham. And she was trying to come to grips with the way in which black women within the Baptist church tradition and within that broader denomination are grappling with uh, the forces of white racism and the attempt of black people to create a cultural response to arguments about their inherent inferiority and the like. And respectability meant that black people would dress a certain way, dress with dignity and decorum, uh, treat people with respect, speak a certain kind of way in the belief that convincing the broader white public in our inherent humanity would somehow win over um, those who were advocates of the opposite viewpoint, that black people were essentially not human and not intelligent and not worthy of respect. Uh, and you see this manifest in a, in a number of ways. W.E.B. Du Bois, in the embrace of a kind of fascination with science, believed that reason could be the adjudicative force between competing claims of either black humanity or black inferiority. So again, the behavior of black people could win the day. More recently, uh, we could see before his epic downfall of uh, Dr. William Cosby, where he was making the argument that pull your britches up. That's the thumbnail sketch of the politics of respectability, that believing that if you didn't look like a thug or wear the paraphernalia of a, of a street urchin, that you would be treated uh, with greater respect and the like. And so uh, that, that viewpoint has you know, metastasized across the body politic in interesting ways. And you think that Barack Obama played into that a little too much from having read your book? Yeah. I mean, he certainly... Uh, has his fascinations with it, though, as I argue in the book, he's the most powerful example that those politics don't work. Who's sharper than he is? Who's more intelligent than he is? Who wears a suit? Still gets called boy by some people. Oh, you know, Harvard pedigree, undergraduate at Columbia. Last time I checked, those are Ivy League schools. Wife went to Princeton and Harvard. Uh, children are well reared, talked about in great terms. And uh, it hasn't worked. I think Chris Rock has an interesting viewpoint, that great intellectual. And I mean that seriously, because he's a very, very sharp guy. In New York Magazine, he says, you know, when we talk about racial progress, he says, let's not get it twisted. 
Uh, he says, you, you talk about racial progress as if black people were doing something wrong, and now they're better. He said, and I wouldn't say it this way, but this is what Chris Rock said. Let me put that out there. Uh, he says, there were lousier white people earlier who were crazier. Now they're less crazy. And so now because white people are less crazy, they allow black people to exist with equanimity and poise. He said, so let's keep hoping that less crazy white people show up. Um, so the politics of respectability doesn't invest in the narrative of crazy white people. It invests in the narrative of the need for morally reproved black people. And I think Obama, when you look at what he said at um, you know, the speech at uh, commencement speech at Morehouse, what he said, one of the most, to me, dispiriting speeches I've seen him give uh, at the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington, where he blamed black people for the lack of progress, the stalled progress of race in America, suggested that because they were poor, it was an excuse not to rear their children. And he's been wont to say, stop feeding them chicken, get up in the morning, you know, like a dear Abby of the White House. And um, that has been, I think, particularly bruising when he has not, as well, talked to white people the same way. Now, the argument would be, hey, you can talk to your own in a way you can't talk to other people. I acknowledge that. But there's a corollary responsibility. If you talk to your people in a certain way, you have the responsibility also to defend, define, and to represent them. And he's been good on one issue, pretty bad on the other. Uh, you and I had an email exchange where I pushed back on some say, well, won't say I argued with you, but I... You did. Several emails. Uh, several emails. <laughs> you are Walter Isaacson. Come on. Uh, well, I hope you uh, it was appreciate that the I engagement, that. even uh, as opposed to just, oh, you're right about it. No, 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 I love that. And here's where we had our disagreement, and you just said it again just now. You said that the politics of respectability as practiced by the president mm -hmm. has been... Uh, deeply unsuccessful and a failure or whatever. And my argument is, hey, wait a minute. This man has just been elected twice, President of the United States. Amen. 10, 12 years ago, you never would have told me that Barack Hussein Obama would be the most successful politician of our day and generation. That's right. Elected, re-elected against John McCain's, Romney's, everything else. How can you tell me it didn't work? Well, because we're not measuring the efficacy of his presidency w through the litmus test of if he could get elected. The politics of respectability is not aimed at white people, it's aimed at black people. So it's not aimed with the broader American culture uh, in mind. He's trying to control and regulate and govern to a certain degree what happens among African American people and to present our best selves. Now, now ain't nobody gonna argue with that. Right? The politics of respectability are preached Sunday in and Sunday out. Mm -hmm. Part of the problem with people who are newfound converts is that they, they think it's new. You and I were just speaking in your office and we're talking about Beyonce and you, was tell, you were telling me, hey, that's been going on for 200 years. Mm -hmm. Not B, she's not that old. But, uh, <laughs> but certainly the impulse to use pop culture as the warehouse of insight about social reality. So the reality is, is that when people act like it's new, they act like they just discovered something. Black people from the very beginning have said, don't tell me about the white man, don't tell me about excuses, do what you gotta do to make sure you step up to the plate. Say for a guy like Jesse Jackson, who preached a certain variety of the politics of respectability, but he tethered it to an, an awareness that there were structural issues that had to be faced. So it's not that, look, Barack Obama will go down, in my estimation, as one of the great presidents we've ever had. And he will go down as a figure who, because of his poise in the midst of the chaos that he confronted, is seen as a darn near a Reagan-like saint. But what he did on race will not win him those plaudits. 
He's the Shaquille O'Neal. He he's the Shaquille O'Neal of presidents, right? Let me let me finish it. He's Shaquille O'Neal. Shaquille O'Neal won four rings. He's a great basketball player, but he couldn't shoot foul shots. It does us no good to gay go. Shaquille O'Neal was a great basketball player, and he could shoot foul shots. He couldn't. In fact, they invented hack a shack because they knew he was vulnerable on that point at the end yeah, of the game right. to try to win it. Obama is vulnerable on the issue of race and his inability to address it in specific form. Shaq O'Neal was great despite the fact that he couldn't shoot foul shots. Absolutely. Do the thought experiment. If Barack Obama had not practiced some of this politics mm -hmm. of respectability, wouldn't he have lost? Well, that depends on if you believe that uh, his emphasis on that respectability was of such significant magnitude to the broader white culture that they were paying attention in that way. So on, uh, it, it's a double, on, right? On one instance, yeah, you're right, right? Because when he went to the uh, church in, uh, in uh, Chicago before he was elected and Jesse Jackson offered a famous severed package uh, to the president, let's leave it there. Um, he said he's talking down to black people. Well, Obama knew what he was doing. Mm -hmm. right, let's flip the script and make him, he's an agent of his own destiny. He's not a child. So as a result of that, that means he knew what he was doing. And what he was doing was, I'm not going to be seen at a black church after Jeremiah Wright has just made his comments criticizing white people. I'm going to be seen handling the business of black people and rather brusquely and rather harshly. Um, which is always amazing to me that the defense of Obama against any kind of criticism uh, is not paralleled by his reservations of being harsh to black people in specific fashion. So he called them boys. I don't think Obama would ever go to a white congregation and call white men boys. He says any boy, any, any no, he didn't say boy, excuse me, he said fool. He said any fool uh, can have a baby and not raise it. Guess who said that 30 years before he did? Jesse Jackson. In fact, he might have been ripping off Jesse Jackson and right there from the transcripts. Re look at 60 Minutes mm -hmm. when Jesse Jackson is hard on. It takes more than having a child. You've got to raise that child. You've got to love that. Right. All the stuff of politics of respectability. But the politics of respectability are called as such because they are often extracted from uh, a kind of engagement with the broader structural issues that make people that lead them to act or at least lead them vulnerable to act in a certain way. So yes, you're right in the sense that had Barack Obama not been uh, seriously engaged with doing everything he could to make sure that white America did not find him offensive. So it's not simply the politics of respectability, it's the politics of n not being angry. That was even more effective. Let me not raise my voice. People call me out my name. Yes, we can. Uh, people engage me in a certain way to calling him, you know, a liar in Congress. He's cool and calm. Part of that is Hawaii. Part of that is the contingency, right? Right. It's this, not Columbia University. No, no, no. That's, okay, that's just Hawaii. It. That's okay, just straight up. Yeah. Let me be cool. Raised by dolphins. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> in the water flipper. <laughs> yeah. So, in Hawaii, chilled out with the atmosphere. You know, that's part of that. Partly that. Partly it's his own makeup, and partly it's his incredible discipline in the face of the seduction and the temptation to respond to white folk in ways that they present to him. See, many white people would admit they don't have that kind of discipline, that if somebody came at them that hard, nastily, viciously, brutally, I'm not saying they'd be Donald Trump, <laughs> but they would, might be Ted Cruz. So what's interesting is that there's a kind of visceral engagement with uh, the, 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 almost the, the, the physical character of his discipline. You can see it on the hair gets grayer. Now all presidents get gray in the hair, but there's something about the temperance that he has had to display in the face 
the forbearance in the face of the incredible odds he's confronted. I mean, uh, Eric Holder told me, the former attorney general, that like Jackie Robinson, he said Jackie Robinson died early because he just had to take it. And Obama has had to take it. I think although with greater, um, greater eff efficacy, he's done it with greater poise uh, because he's in a different generation. But my God, we can't even imagine what he's had to put up with, with the name calling and the horror. You know, a governor of Arizona on the tarmac with her finger in his face like he's her child? Now, you better be glad that wasn't Snoop Dogg. You know what I'm saying? Because that could have been a different response. Or, not only Snoop Dogg, thank God that wasn't another politician who, having his wits about him, would have said something smart and so on. But Obama has had to suppress all of that. And in that degree, to that degree, he's had to be the non-angry black man. Because despite the fact, many of my white progressive fellows say to me, why can't he be mad? I said, come on now, look at your own household. Look at your own people. Look at your community. Do you, how does, Cam Newton can't even be happy. Mad, yeah. Right? You know, he can, you know after a football uh, uh, touchdown, he, can, he can't even be ebullient. So if you can't be ebullient, you can't be angry. And there's a kind of, uh, uh, you know, parallel here with, with Obama in terms of the extraordinary discipline. So I'll grant you that. But what he didn't have to do is that while he's taking it, being beat up on by the masses and the right wing, the Tea Party elements of it, which were, I think, profoundly reactionary and racist. I think we can argue that. Totally. Um, Obama did something interesting. So while he's getting beat up on, and think about it, you got bodyguards. You know, the masses of black people don't have Secret Service. So you can say certain things because you, you know, you can talk trash because you got people to back you up. Uh, the masses of black people don't have that. But at the moment, at the height of the epic insurgence against him, Domestically, with all the racism, he turns around and does the same thing to black people. I find that troubling. What, it, what I mean by it's the same thing, let me tell you what I mean. At that moment, he was giving his sternest, harshest lectures to black people. Now, now, to give him a charitable interpretation, it might be he sees how tough it is out here, and he wants you to get your stuff together. I'm down with that. Black people have preached that from the very beginning. You've got to be twice as smart. You've got to get up earlier than anybody else. You've got to work hard. I'm down with that. What is problematic, however, because it leads to a kind of charge of political hypocrisy. Why point out what you see to be the errors of black people when you refuse to acknowledge the errors of white people because it represents this particular interpretation? Black people are the only ones who have problems because he ain't saying nothing about white people. He's not saying anything about Miley Cyrus. He's only talking about Kanye West. Mm -hmm. So as a result of that, what we believe, that was metaphoric. Mm -hmm. Although he literally did say something about Kanye as a jackass, say, no. and he proved to be a prophet. Yeah. But what, what I'm saying is... <laughs> Although Kanye is braver than he has been uh, on some instances as well. So I'm my not going to debate Kanye yeah, with you, but there's two sides to that one. I'm going to borrow $53 million from you. <laughs> so what's interesting is that um, Obama, uh, by refusing to show to white America, black America, brown, red, yellow America, America, that let's be equal here. If we're going to, you know, you got two kids, you got to criticize them maybe differently, but you got to be equally invested in the criticism of each. And Obama simply hasn't done that. Why? Because he knows he can't do it. The one time he tried to be critical in public of white people was that infamous statement at a Tony fundraiser in San Francisco mm -hmm. when he said they cling to guns. Yeah, yeah. Sarah Palin brilliantly parodied him on that, on the gun clinging uh, American. He said they get bitter, they get religion. And white people let him know, don't ever do that again. They beat him down mercilessly, and he got the lesson. But let black me people go did back not do that. to your book. Please do. Because your book Please do. actually has the weave of very complex Thank you for Barack saying. Obama. Yes. And let's take a couple of the incidents. Mm -hmm. um, Trayvon Martin. Mm -hmm. 
it wasn't quite as simple as you've just described it now, right. his reaction on Trayvon Martin. No, it wasn't. Well, look, most of what I'm, we're talking, hopefully when people read that's the book. That's why I'm bringing it back to right, the right, printed yeah. page. People can see how much more complicated it was. Um, Trayvon was, was an evolution of, of consciousness and thought for him. I mean, initially, after George Zimmerman uh, was not indicted for, uh, not indicted, but not uh, found guilty for uh, killing uh, Trayvon Martin, the president, knowing that there was huge pathos and hurt and pain and trauma in black America, uh, still gave a statement that was relatively, relatively ineffectual. Look, this is a nation of laws. You've got to obey the laws. This is the judgment has been rendered. That was it. I think that's pretty insufficient. And then the groundswell so kept did building. He. Well, he, he, he was pushed to see that. Not like he just sat at home and said, you know, I think I made a mistake there. You know, uh, all presidents get pushed. I mean, all of them, regardless of your all ideology. All get pushed. Absolutely right. But his pushing is more consequential than yours or mine. No oh. disrespect to you. Uh, you far more than me. So, you know, the, the bully pulpit exists for a reason. But people have to be thrust into it. I don't, I don't know if the story is apocryphal or not. When FDR met at dinner with A. Philip Randolph and Mary McLeod Bethune, and he agreed to the black agenda they put forth, he said, now go out there and make me do it. In other words, create public pressure so that I look as if I'm going, hey, well, A. Philip Randolph is out here. What do you want me to do? I got to respond. It's a social movement. Um, Obama said he wanted that, but not really. And black people were complicit in that. And you can understand why. Uh, black people gave the most excuses for Obama because we've had one president, right? You know, white Americans have had 43. You're bored, whatever, president, what, you know? So, but this guy, and then my white brothers and sisters tell me, but you know he's half us. So we can't even get a whole brother in the White House, right? So we got half a dude in the White House. So we're going to work with what we got. We love the way he walks down Air Force One. We love the way he loves his family. We love the way he signifies, uses black vernacular to a certain place. We love how he gets back at Republicans when they clap after he says, I have no more runs to, uh, races to run. And he goes, because I beat you twice. And we, we translate inside in our own head black vernacular. That's why, because I beat you twice. I have no more runs to race. What you want? And then other curse words are string along. So we get what he's, what he's doing there. At the same time, uh, when you look at the complicated configuration of forces that are arrayed against him, when you look at a, a kind of Trayvon Martin, he, he, he said earlier, if I had a son like Trayvon, I mean, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. A personal existential investment in this black boy's skin, especially important since Trayvon had been demonized as a thug with no reason, no valid empirical verification. Just the fact that he had a hoodie on, like Bill Belichick, like Gerardo Rivera, and others who were assaulting this young man. And so uh, Obama did tremendous symbolic work by, by identifying with him. Because after all, at the end of the day, there was no distance between him and this young man potentially. The things Obama did as a young man that he knew, that he spoke about, that could have led him to the same situation he identified with. That was important for the nation. And then finally, when he walked into that, you know, uh, White House room, I don't know if it was a James Brady room or not, and he delivered a remarkable, a remarkable off-the-cuff speech uh, about why black people were upset. He was not chiding, he was not lecturing, he was explaining. He wasn't even justifying. He was saying, look at it this way, my brothers and sisters. Be open to, speaking of white people, be open to the fact that black people are upset because of the following reasons. And when he said, for instance, he says, could Trayvon Martin have done what George Zimmerman did? And if there's any doubt in your mind 
at least be open to the fact that something else is going on that you need to pay attention to. It was a remarkable speech, but it was, but, but it was good because he didn't find the need to demonize anybody. He didn't find the need, and now he could have more readily demonized white racists and bigots than he could have innocent black people who work hard, right? You know, you gotta look at the internal choices he made. However, given the fact that he, um, that he did that, it was an extremely important point. And uh, his fascination with law and order, you know, as I point out in the book, when he, he's always talking about we're a nation of laws. Your mother and father literally broke the law to have you. Mm -hmm. You are a manifestation of a broken law, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yourself. So what you're doing is retroactively undermining your existence in the same way that the right wing wants to retroactively, though it stands as uh, uh, pro-life, abort him politically. Uh, across the board. So he's caught in those kind of complicated things. I give him much love. Much of my book is a, right. an appreciation for his rhetorical genius, for his political bravery on some issues, and for his willingness to, to put his neck out there for some issues, just not you know, for black people in this way. When he says to black people, another insulting, you know I'm not the president of black America. Really, well, we didn't know that. We thought you were the president of the NAACP. God, you, you mean you running this whole thing? That's amazing. I mean, stop. We know this. So, but but you, are, you may not be the president of black America, but you are the president of black Americans. We are members of the state. Are you attempting to deny us legitimate standing in the state by that phrase that you thought was cute, but really con contained some rather troubling political consequences in its offering? So unless we hold them accountable, He's not going to just so get that without any kind of accountable. Let's as much as we can. Which is affordable care for all Americans, uh, dealing with police violence and shootings, all of these things. How can you say he hasn't been accountable? both to all Americans and to the concerns because of we pushed him, Walter. When he after Ferguson, after Ferguson. Obama got up and basically said the following. Ferguson, Michael Brown, who had been right. murdered in, in St. Louis. And he didn't go there, and Eric Holder did, right? No, no, he went to Newtown and he cried. You can't cry where you don't go. So what's interesting, a little shot across the bow, but I'm saying, mm -hmm. I'm saying, you can't be sympathetic. You, you go to Detroit, but you can't go 60 miles up the road to Flint, where a crisis of epic mm -hmm. environmental proportions is taking place. So where he doesn't choose to go is as revealing of his politics as where he goes. But back to the point uh, here, um, when, when we talk about you know, what Obama is, is saying and choosing to do, it has to be taken in light of what choices are available. That's why I said we pushed him. We, people across the board, not me, but, but others. So when he comes out and he says basically, you know, some black people do commit crimes. And if they do commit crimes, they should go to jail. Sir, sir. After Michael Brown has been murdered, killed, by a policeman, he's unarmed, whatever the, 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 the engagement was, however nasty it was and nefarious, the fact is that he laid on the ground for four hours and you are now telling black people that some black people do commit crimes and as a result of that they should go to jail in the midst of this, it's tone deaf and it's insensitive to the, to the particular situation at hand. And then when he heard back, when there was blowback, right, and I know because I know there was blowback, and I know there was a response. Let me leave it at that. Um, so when that engagement occurred, to his credit, though, he listens. Mm -hmm. To his credit, when people say, um, look, I, I, I'm on your team, as I am. I was a surrogate twice for Obama. I love you, and I do. Love him, and I, and I feel that passion. 
But at the same time, if your friends can't tell you the truth, even if you think I'm not your friend because I tell you the truth, I'll, I'll take that sacrifice. But, but we've got to push him in a way where he goes, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't talk merely about the crimes that black people commit. Maybe I should start talking about, you know what? Sometimes police people behave in a way that's not, that, that's not fair. That's not proper. He didn't do that because he wanted to. He did that because there was pressure on him to see the necessity of linking those in public explanations that would have a more tenable outcome and a more positive impact. But his administration, his Justice Department has gone after police forces. Uh, Oh, Eric Holder did, yeah. And you don't give the president credit for that? Oh, I, I, of course I do. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that, look, he hired Eric Holder mm -hmm. and, and, and gave him that responsibility. Um, look, there's Starsky and Hutch everywhere. I uh, know, okay. <laughs> uh, and finally, on the last incident in the book, because it is your careful, it's an evolution and complexities of Barack mm -hmm. Obama, Charleston is an amazing chapter mm -hmm. in here. Yes. Let me say one thing about the Eric Holder thing before I end on Charleston. What I say about it, I don't want people to think I'm being unfair. What I'm saying about Obama, what he, you know, Eric Holder went to Ferguson. But Eric Holder didn't go, he went to Newtown too, but Obama went with him, right? Black people deserve a president as American citizens who care about us in public spaces, not because he's a black man, but because the black man happens to be the president. We deserve, look, George Bush the elder went to uh, Los Angeles when it was burning, LBJ, what, right? Presidents go and show up where crisis has broken out because of his own personal, uh, if you will, discomfort for understandable reasons about not being read as being so uh, unapologetically black and so on the side of black people that you could be charged with somehow tilting the scales. I understand all that. But the consequence is that black people are left out in the cold, so to speak. I think black people deserve the president to come to Chicago where they were being murdered brutally. I think black people deserve the president to go to, to, to Flint, Michigan. If George Bush had gone 60 miles outside of New Orleans and not stopped by where a major poisoning of the people were, was occurring, he'd be lambasted by black people too. It's part of our hypocrisy as well. Um, in regard to that great speech, that sermon, this man, uh, as I try to argue in, in the book, was an extraordinary figure coming to a place where he bore a kind of symbolic guilt, not individually, just as president. You're talking about Obama. Yeah. Obama. And stepping into that pulpit, Nikki Haley bore some of that guilt, Lindsey Graham, because they're part of a state that celebrated the Confederate flag. I don't mean individually, I'm talking about collective political responsibility. Mm -hmm. And Obama bore that because the young man who murdered those people in the church says, you people are taking over. Obama has to know he's in part talk, mostly talking about him, because the only thing black people running now are prisons, because we in, in them and we're, and I don't mean running them, <laughs> I'm just talking about the numbers that we, the, that we populate those spaces. But black people <coughs> empirically are not taking over anything else. So his perception of black people's takeover, that white moral panic that was articulated at the visceral level of violence, was directed implicitly against Obama. And I think Obama was sensitive enough to understand that. So he has to do quite a bit of work as a kind of first preacher. He has to absorb into, uh, absorb into his body all of the guilt of the nation and then rearticulate the practice of love as the basis for redemption. And he did so brilliantly. And then the saying on top of it, man, to give him amazing grace, yeah. even though he's a little off, that's all right. That's the blue sensibility of black people, yeah, the, 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 the swing and the sour notes and what he did. And then he hooping at the end, you know, in black churches, uh, people may not be familiar with the hoop, the tune where black people like um, priests who are singing, 
You better not fight the Lord around. Mm-hmm. You know, so Obama started tuning up. So-and-so knew about that grace. So-and-so knew. I was like, preach, preach. Um, and was electric, was powerful, avoided demonization, brought us together, showed the love uh, for all people, especially black humanity, as the litmus test for acknowledging the, the power of democracy. So in that moment, as I argued, he was at his black, blackest when he was at his best. And, and often that is juxtaposed. When we were speaking about Beyonce back in your office, what's interesting is that you know, Saturday Night Live had this you know, wonderful, wonderful humanity take. Beyonce's black the day Beyonce became black because black people are not allowed to be black and human at the same time. There's, there's, a, there's a kind of schizoid uh, impulse in the culture to say either you're human and therefore you deny the legitimate authority of your ethnicity or race, or you are black and therefore you don't have full access to that humanity. And Obama has struggled with that, that has been foisted upon him. And he did brilliantly that day of showing I can be at my blackest when I'm at my best, and it can be redemptive for the nation and bring us together as one human family. All right, we'll end with, since you brought him up twice or three times, Beyonce, Kanye West, you teach a course. And Kendrick Lamar. Uh, well, you teach two courses. Mm-hmm. One's a very deep philosophical course. You get about 22 students. And the other <laughs> deals with popular culture and race, and you probably fill up the biggest uh, classroom in Georgetown. We get the chemistry labs full there. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, and that's, that's, uh, that's a class that, you know, I got to sneak, I got to seduce these students into thinking hard about these issues. So the stuff on, I teach a class on Obama, that's pretty popular. You know, I teach stuff on poverty and radical inequality and, you know, big time Germanic and French social theory, Derrida, Foucault, mm-hmm. Heidegger. I love that stuff. I'm a nerd on that. But then I come to Beyonce and they think we're going to come in there like, oh, that was some dope stuff. Let's listen to these lyrics. Nope. It's not what we're doing. So we talk about race, class, culture. And, and the like, we talk about feminism, but we do so through a, a figure like a Beyonce who brings together, as we saw in the Super Bowl performance, such interesting convergences and contradictions. And a lot of the white students uh, may not have had permission to engage in thinking about these issues. And it gets tense and tight sometimes, because black students finally thinking, hey, we got a black professor in a black class where we are dominant. It's not, you know, we can talk. And then balancing that off against the need of, of engaging people who are not African-American, who are really a reflection of the United Nations. And we have a tremendous time. I and mean, we, we talk about big issues in ways. We get letters from their parents. Why the hell are they taking their class on Beyonce? I'm paying all this damn money. And then we see this crazy man that we see off of TV. And I was like, you're, you're just perverting our kids. Yes, that is my yeah. desire to pervert <laughs> your kids. That's the point of that college. Is that point of college. I'm trying to warp the minds <laughs> these kids so they can go out and warp the world in a good way, in a beautiful way, in a redemptive way, in a non-Trumpian way, right? Mm. Questions, please. Uh, Comments, questions. Here's my question, comment, brief comment and question. Uh, Barack Obama became instantly a national figure uh, when he gave a keynote speech in 2004 mm-hmm. at the Democratic Convention, mm-hmm. it stopped all of us. Who is that man? Mm-hmm. And he came on the stage, he ignited the imagination of the American population, all races, and uh, 
he based his campaign on this United. Yes, we can. Yeah. It's not about me, it's about you. Mm. It's a matter of trust. Right. Uh, some scholars draw a contrast in my own non-scholarly, scholarly personal experience draws a contrast between candidate Obama and President Obama. You know, when you're courting, it's different than when you're married. I don't know about y'all, I'm just saying. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm hell on that courtship. Yeah. You know, the follow through is more complicated. Uh, and then you know more about each other when you get married, you know? You know, the toothbrush over here, the toilet up over there, the toilet paper, you cooking or not, how you dealing with the kids. In other words, the mechanics, you know, people usually use the metaphor of sausage making and it's ugly and Obama has, you know, disavowed the affection for sausage making in the way that Bill Clinton loved it, could just endless sausage making uh, he loved. But I think, you know, Obama is a different, quote, animal. You know, it's been said that, you know, Bill Clinton was a dog. 99 people in the room don't love you, but one doesn't. The dog goes to the one that doesn't. Hmm? Hmm? Why don't you? What's wrong with me? Right? Obama more like a cat. You dig me, that's good. If you don't, holla. <laughs> right? I don't really give a damn, you know? Now, so you look at the, the kind of political persona that's being generated, right? Because we didn't know that about him. And what we knew, and I was there that night um, for that speech, and it was remarkable. Why wouldn't it be? There's not a white America or a black America. There's only the United States of America. Ha! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Boy, if that were true, and it didn't have to be true. He wasn't a liar. He was a dreamer, right? He believed in it, and he made us believe in it. We invested together. We knew it wasn't true, but we wanted to believe it, and that's important, too, to want to believe that. And then he's a tabula rasa. He's clean. He's an empty slate. We didn't really know that much about him. Right? It's not like Hillary Clinton, where we've known for like, been in there 30, 35 years, and the exorbitant sexism against her is so astonishing. All right? I don't want to get off on that soapbox, but it's crazy. You can. All right? <laughs> crazy. What, what's going on against Hillary right now is criminal to me. Right? Criminal to me. Uh, John Boehner cries, oh my God, it's an epic moment of the revelation of masculinity and embracing its softer side. Hillary cries, there's no crying in baseball. I mean, the double standard, right? So with Obama, we didn't have the kind of cumulative knowledge about who he was. And he didn't know what he didn't know until he knew what he didn't know when he got in there. Because there's one thing to know it, that's why the hair goes great. I don't know. You know what they tell you every day? Look, look, they about to blow us up in 15 different spots right now, but go eat your dinner anyway. So I'm sure that's pretty tough. Yeah. But, and to answer your question more, more nearly, a lot of progressives are disappointed in him and they, they have a right to be disappointed in him. A lot of black people are disappointed, they have a right to be, right? We have a right to hold him accountable according to what he said, but we have to judge what he said then according to what it took to not only get nominated, Walter's point about not only get nominated, it might be even more important as a black man who was the first president to get re-elected re than to get inducted the first time. I mean, that's remarkable because now we knew something about you, we knew who you were, and you still were able to convince enough Americans that your vision would be redemptive. Now David Brooks is writing, I already miss you. You ain't even gone. You're not even gone, right? And I ain't gonna lie, you, know, you see what, I, I'm gonna miss him too. But you know, you, you miss him when you look at Donald Trump or Ted Cruz. You miss him when you look at people who can't even string a sentence together. They're nouns and pronouns and gerunds and good God almighty, 
the dude can speak and he can talk. Now, so the point is that we didn't know who he was. He was able to exploit that lack of knowledge. And at the same time, he also was basically a moderate a moderate Democrat. He was not a progressive reformer in that degree. He's an incrementalist on race, on foreign policy. He does on foreign policy what he did on race. He's consistent. Lead from behind. When they force him into the pocket in position, then he gets in order. Now, that might be ingenious. And what choice? Let me, let me end by saying this. Barack Obama, as the first black president, comes into office. What does he do? He bails out the banks, number one. Now, people from the left who are purists go, oh my God, that was a capitulation to Wall Street ideology. Can you imagine the headlines for the first black man to run the country and lets the banks fail? He, forget about re-election. He might not make it out of that week, right? He would be gone. So he's got to save the banks, which had implications for the broader economy. He's got to do the TARP money. He's got to, uh, to redistribute uh, uh, wealth. He's also bailing out the automobile industry and he gives us health care, all in the first two years. Remarkable with the, with the pitched resistance of a recalcitrant and unapologetically hateful Congress in his face preventing him from engaging, which is why I especially think what he did culturally and symbolically to black people is so harmful because that he could control. What he couldn't control, what was out of his hands, was what the Republicans forced him into and what he then responded to. What you did control was the ability to present people in as best a fashion as possible to achieve your ultimate goal. So that's what happened to him. I mean, life, politics, and the White House. Thank you for being here, Professor. Uh, based on your research and what you've learned, do you think that the president's silence on some of these issues that you've spoken about is symptomatic of the restrictions on the presidency in his office or perhaps his personality? And how do you expect him to lend to his voice to these issues after he's left? Yes, sir. No, it's a great question. I mean, and it's a combination of all of the above. That's what I meant about the cat and the dog kind of thing. Uh, look, Obama wouldn't have been elected president if he was a certain kind of black man. Can we say that as ni nicely as possible? Right? It's not Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton, both of whom are brilliant, engaged men. But they represent a different persona, collectively speaking, in the unconscious of American American politics. Uh, Obama represented an alternative. And partly what happened to him is that he got blackened in the same way that, that Beyonce did. What, what happened? He got beyonce -ed. They discovered he was black. Oh my God, he's a black man. And let me tell you what, it's easier for us to imagine what that might mean, but 54% of Republicans now believe he's a Muslim. 54%. Now, as Jerry Fine Seinfeld would say, not that there's any problem with that, right? Because <laughs> you could be a Muslim, given how we put our hands on the Bible and swore an oath to truth, maybe we should try the Oli Quran to see if we can have a better result. I'm not, I'm not against that. Or the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, or the Tao Te Ching, whatever your comic book is, right? So the point is, 54% didn't believe he was a Muslim, and most, many did not believe he was a true American. That will happen to you. That will change your understanding and perception of your faith and investment in America, and then doing what you think can happen. In, in regard to Obama, I think, yes, um, his own personality, his disinclination uh, to make broad uh, statements, even his own uh, attorney general, Eric Holder, when he said we're a, a nation of cowards, Obama came back and basically disciplined him in public. He said, you know, had I been speaking to my attorney general, I would have spoken differently. We know that. That's why it's Starsky Hutch. Uh, yeah. Let him do the Hutch. You be Starsky. But, don't, but it doesn't work if you're going to criticize him in public. Just be quiet. Let it go on. Let him say what he's got to say because he's a grown-ass man and you're a grown-ass man and you're both political figures. So at that level, I think Obama's desire to uh, not only, I think, articulate his own particular political p sensibility, 
but I think his discomfort with certain forms of expression uh, were problematic. And I end by saying this, this is why I hold him accountable according to his own practices and according to his own ideals as well to engage these issues. If you listen to that race speech in 2008, he said this is the time to speak about race in America and then proceeded, as our uh, fine gentleman has indicated, by doing anything but, yeah. all right? So it's a complicated configuration of both of those things. Okay. And after, afterward, nobody, look, he'll be able to do the My Brother's Keeper, but it's like Michael Jordan said, when I leave basketball, I'll talk about race, well, nobody will really care at that level. It's not that nobody will care what he thinks, but you got the power now. My Brother's Keeper was an interesting choice when you have public policy available you choose a social outlet of a charitable organization. An interesting, curious, and I think ultimately ineffective uh, resolution of the problem that he was confronting. Uh, let me do say, though, that there is a My Brother's Keeper initiative within the White House as well. But oh, absolutely. Minor thing. Oh, right, right. And it's tremendous. I love it. I'm just yeah. saying in terms of I don't know why policy. I'm sitting here being the uh, press secretary You're the, the president. You're the man. You're the man. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm if gonna you want to criticize him, fine. <laughs> no, I, I love you. Mm -hmm. You're right. Professor Dyson, it seems to me that Obama was propelled by two events, mm -hmm. the war in Iraq and the financial meltdown in 2008. Mm -hmm. He wasn't elected because of his blackness or because he was seen as progressive. Mm. So don't you think that these two events made him a national figure? I think so, but I would add, I would not discount race, sir, because in this country, in particular, despite the kind of global factors that you speak about, they were rooted in America, but they had global consequence. The, the melting of the financial markets had immediate consequence across the globe, uh, as well as, of course, entree into the war in Iraq that we see now being vetted and viciously engaged uh, by conservatives right now in uh, the, cons the Republican runoff for the president. But I would not discount race. America wanted, to, you know, it felt good about itself, and rightfully so. We were able, finally, to come to a point to, to elect a person of color who, because of his talent, because of his skill, because of his ability, because of his insight, because of his charm and charisma, to be able to convince us that his vision was superior, and despite the historic legacy of inequality, uh, he was able to be elected. So those two factors that you mentioned are immediately available for us to think critically about, but I, I wouldn't discount the racial issue at all. Mm -hmm. I just wonder, both of you being historians, when has it ever not been too toxic to talk about race in this country? And a colleague of ours, those of us in journalism, John Meacham had said on Meet the Press that white people get queasy when they talk about race. So if we can't talk about race and white people get talk, can't talk about race, who talks about the original sin in this country? The Martians. I mean, you're right. I mean, you're, that's a brilliant, brilliant point. My next book is addressing white people who find it difficult to talk about race. Will y'all buy that book as well? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Otherwise, I might not write it. Um, look, that's a, it's an excellent point. Black people can't talk about race. White folk won't talk about race. And as a result of that, we talk endlessly about it. <laughs> and it is, but we, we submerge it. When LeBron James left Cleveland to go to Miami, that was a race discourse in America. So we have to do it by proxy. When we mention Beyonce, that's a proxy race conversation. When Kendrick Lamar is at the Grammys and gives a hell of a performance, wins five Grammys, but not the big ones because Taylor Swift wins it, that's a race proxy conversation. So we're not able to explicitly engage the issue of race. Black people talk about it, get over it. Now John Meacham you know, can talk about Andrew Jackson or George Bush, and he will be, and he did, and brilliantly. 
my man, and be celebrated for it. We can have 100 books on Abraham Lincoln a year. We can have endless books on the founding fathers, mothers, brothers. Oh, we love history. Black people come out with two books on race and a slave film. Oh, my God, get over it. Right? Two books, two films. Right? And so the inability to speak about race, I think Gore Vidal is right. We live in the United States of amnesia. Right? We do. And I would add that the theme song is supplied by Barbara Streisand. Mm -hmm. What's too painful to remember, we simply choose to forget. Right? I knew this audience would know Barbara. I just, that's why I said that. No more Tupac up in here, no Jay-Z. This is Barbara Streisand. So as a result of that, the inability to speak openly about it. We talk about it, we just don't talk about it openly. You know, when Dylan Roof wrote that manifesto that was sick in the aftermath of, uh, in anticipation of having murdered those nine people, he made some interesting arguments. And one of them was that black people talk endlessly about race and white people never do. Yes, white people talk about race, but not in the presence of black or brown or red or yellow people, mostly. And when they do, we see what happens with vis-a-vis, -vis, and I hate to keep using him as a foil, but Donald Trump, or the kind of politicization of a racial discourse of racist animus. So, so what happens is you have people who are fine that they can't talk about it, which is why I talk about it in my classes. I, 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 I mandate that my white students speak, because usually what happens is that white folk, white students lay back in the cut, and black people will talk it. I said, no, we got, to, we got to rig this. I need to hear from, I said, I'm going to make you uncomfortable, white students, but you will have to be representatives of your race today. Right? And of course, it's ludicrous for anybody to be a representative. But black people are all the time are made that. Latino people are made, right? So then we get into a conversation where people begin to expose what they think, shape what they think in conversation with others, and it's much more healthy. So I think that what we have to do, what we have to encourage the nation to do, and I think, quite frankly, the president was in a difficult situation, but he was not good for, for this kind of argument. We must do it in a way that is honest, that is open, that is straightforward, that allows other viewpoints to breathe. And when people who are interested in, we're not talking about people who don't give a damn, who hate, who will determine to hate for the rest of their lives, we can't win those people. But the people we can speak to are people who might have good intentions, but who don't have necessarily good methodology, or who may feel a certain kind of thing that is politically incorrect, but we must have the space to be able to engage that. And the only way to do that is to create an atmosphere where people are able to tell that truth. The politics of respectability are counterproductive to an honest engagement with race. And on the other hand, the kind of politics of amnesia practiced in broader white society, at least in the presence of others, is counterproductive to that kind of conversation. When we can create a, a forum where we can honestly and openly engage that, then I think we got much more progress in the offense. My name is Tanya Ward-Jordan. I'm an injured federal wor uh, worker due to race discrimination retaliation in the federal government. Mm. And I, too, was inspired by President Obama. And st I started a nonprofit called Coalition for Change, believing in the change. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, in the federal government, the civil servants are to uphold the public trust. There is internal racism from agriculture to veterans affairs. Mm -hmm. uh, we did a FOIA request. Like yourself and others, we're trying to hold this administration accountable as we did the others. Right. Um, we are not getting any uh, lead way or uh, getting anywhere with this. Currently, when there's discrimination, class actions, over 108 class actions, there is discrimination in every major agency. If there was Walmart, the head of Walmart, you hold them accountable. President Obama is not just the president of the United States, he is the head chief employer of all the cabinet level agencies. What, what I'm gonna close, and if I can just close by saying internal discrimination bleeds into our programs and services, and it impacts everyone. Right. 
Yeah, that's a hell of a point, actually. And it's a point that people may not want to grapple with. And the irony of having a black face at the head of the American empire, globally speaking, that is the inverse to a degree, or at least a parallel, I should say, to what, what she's speaking about here, that not only is he the president symbolically and substantively in terms of politics, but the chief executive officer in terms of the practices. And this is where race, not just racism, but race operates in the interstices, in the cracks and the crevices, uh, civil service and civil servants. Right, an attack on the public that many Republicans put forth on the far right wing is an attack on black people's ability to have jobs and women and other minorities as well. So the accumulation of uh, those kind of complaints mean that I think the president has not strictly paid attention to how the pipeline is created and future civil servants and future people who are capable of taking advantage of their service in government to go up to certain grades, to be able to, for the next administration to be employed, is really what we're speaking about as well. For instance, when Obama first came into office, people said, why is he getting all these uh, Clinton people? Why is it that basically? Right, hmm? Yeah, go ahead. Right, exactly, right? So, so the thing is, is that when you have experience and you've been allowed to play, then you accumulate that uh, level of experience to be able to apply it to the next uh, administration or more broadly to other spaces and arenas within, say, civic uh, organization and especially in government. The reason it's related to what you're saying, what I'm trying to suggest and doing a poor job of it perhaps, but let me come more clearly now, is that, uh, that that has been one of the major failures of people who complain about lack of access. Uh, who are African-American or Latino and others that the president has not paid attention to. Infrastructure, not simply the roads and the buildings, but the way in which the arteries that, f that, that create the body politic, the physical body of government is something that he's failed to pay attention to. And not only that, you had a corollary argument when people said, this is interesting, we got a black president, I can't even get money for uh, media buyouts in black uh, newspapers. Right? There were a lot of, because Obama employed disproportionate numbers of non-African American people. That's why George Bush had, even at the top level, more black folk working for him as a cabinet member than, than, than Barack Obama does. Bill Clinton, certainly. Wait, wait, is that true right now? Yes. I mean, well, well certainly for uh, Bill Clinton. Um, and, and if you look at the more elite positions, uh, George Bush, Junior, uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush, no, George W. w. Bush, um, had two black secretaries of state, you know, with Condoleezza Rice and with Colin Powell uh, in, a, in a very serious way. So in that way, uh, and his, his Africa policy was much more enlightened and much more engaged, right? We didn't even get a chance to talk about the face of American empire and the kinds of things that Obama did to <clears throat> black people here, he did to Africans. And let me give one quick example. When he first got elected, he went on that world tour. Republicans said he was doing the apology tour. He went to Cairo, you know, Turkey. He went, he went all over the world. We apologize, it's horrible. What we did with American racism, I mean, excuse me, with American empire was crazy. He gets to Africa and he says, I don't wanna hear nothing. Don't tell me anything about the Africans. This, don't tell me about neocolonialism. I believe Africans are responsible for Africa. So you tell me, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, uh, as objective a, a fashion as possible, what is it about 
Obama vis-a-vis -vis Africans who were black and African-Americans who were black in this nation, there is something particular and specific that has to be acknowledged and engaged, one of the consequences of which the disproportionate numbers of people of color who are in these spaces you speak about who feel left alone and abandoned. That's something I didn't even touch in my book, but it's something worthy of a consideration. Mm -hmm. Professor, I was wondering what your thoughts might be on the remarkable speech of the president in Charleston. Mm -hmm. Was he more influenced by what his own reaction to the terrible tragedy, or was he, do you think he might have been more uh, influenced by the reaction and the attitude of the congregation, which remarkably forgave the assailant? Yes, sir. That's a, that's a great, great point. And, and of course, and I hate to be like, but it's both, <laughs> right? Um, black preaching at its best, as any form of uh, address, depends upon the audience. You want a great preacher? Be a great audience, right? You have to have some electricity. You know, I've gone some places, and they're like, you can't, you know, you can't get off your best lines, your best shots. <laughs> oh, you can't engage. We're laughing at your good luck. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's no, you know, simpatico that's established at a certain kind of rhetorical level. I know you, you're talking about something different, but I want to start there. Um, there's no question that he was shamed as the political representative of America, not as a black man, right? As the political representative of America, as the ultimate um, embodiment of our political destiny, that, that America had done this horrible act through this guy, had been complicit in it through the Confederate flag, which is why he came at it much more explicitly than ever, and it was a propitious moment. And the black people forgave this man before he asked for it. He hasn't even asked for it, not to this day. And they forgave him, both as a matter of their religion, both as a matter of their, more broadly, their theology related to that, but a kind of specific theological uh, understanding of grace, and the redemptive character of forgiveness, both as a matter of political self-respect and self-defense, to not let that poison and bitterness enter into your hearts to make you hate this man. As King often talked about, never let a man pull you so low as to make you hate him, quoting, I think, Booker T. Washington. So when you think about it that way, yes, that, of course, as I argue in the book, gave the president a moment where he had to, and you forgive me, you may disagree with me, apologize in, in a way, for all of the bad stuff he had said about these people, right? Because the only picture of black people through his language was mostly chiding and lecturing. Now we see the remarkable example of the forgiveness of ordinary black people to forgive the heinous crime that was done against them. And so I think his own internal barometer, because if you like Barack Obama in that speech, you love Jeremiah Wright. You might not like that. If you love Obama in Charleston, he was nurtured, right? Not the, not the Jeremiah Wright you've been taught to hate, not that guy. The guy who spoke about love and social revolution. The guy who spoke about forgiving your enemies. The guy who white people came to his church and engaged him. That Jeremiah Wright shaped Bar Barack Obama. Why do I know I was a church member with him under Jeremiah Wright? That's a revelation here. I didn't say that before. All right. So... So if you love Jeremiah, if you love uh, Barack Obama there, then you love that kind of brand of theology. And yes, it was both his response to the forgiveness of black people that then, I think, connected with his own internal sense of what was right and how he should move and behave in the world uh, as a Christian and as a man of, of, of faith. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you.
That was best-selling author and Georgetown sociology professor Michael Eric Dyson speaking with Aspen Institute President and CEO Walter Isaacson. The conversation was part of the Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series at the Institute. Discover more about the Aspen Institute at aspeninstitute.org. Follow the Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.